0: James Montgomery Boyce, in his sermon, when he introduced this passage, tells the story of the English poet William Wordsworth and a friend who took a walking tour from Switzerland to Italy. They crossed over what's called the, the Simplon Pass. Um, I've never been there, I've never seen the pass, I looked up pictures. In preparation for this morning, and it looks pretty pretty daunting. It's a natural saddle that's actually in the in the Alps. It's a place where people would cross the the mountains. And on their very long journey, which was which was wide and and long, they, they lost sight of where they started back in Switzerland. They descended into a ravine and they, they felt lost. And finding a farmer on the path, they asked where they could find the road to Italy, and the farmer informed them that they had arrived. They had already crossed the mountain, and they were now on the other side. And Boyce said, in a sense, that's how we should feel this morning, coming to these two verses. For five and a half chapters, we've been laboring up this doctrinal mountain of what God has done for us in salvation, and now for the first time, we've... We've passed over to, to the other side, and we face the verses that tell us what to do in, in response. This is the very first part of application in all of the book of Romans, where we're specifically commanded to do something. And Paul will, will give those commands to us here, kind of hit us very quickly with, with three commands, and then he'll go back to, to doctrine and explaining, and he'll do that all the way through chapter eight and nine, and then talk about Israel and... And then he'll come back to the application in chapter 12, which is a passage you know well. Um, Beseech ye therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. And so he starts that here, and he'll pick that up again in, in chapter 12. And, but we have surely crossed the spiritual alps. I mean, chapter upon chapter, we've traversed exposition and doctrine. And Paul now turns to application, or the so what of the book. He's, he's shown us our sin and our condemnation in chapters 1 through 3. He's detailed the glorious hope that we have in the gospel. At the sec, in the second half of chapter 3, he turned our eyes to the consistency of salvation by faith alone in the Bible, looking at David and then Abraham. In chapter 4, he, he presented to us the glorious assurance that we have in chapter 5 because of these promises that flow out of our justification. And because of this, this new person that we're in, we're no longer in Adam, we're in Christ. And, and finally, he's brought us to rest here in chapter 6, revealing our union with Christ and his death to sin. And after spending 11 verses explaining that truth, Paul provides us two very potent verses that, that call us to action, call us to war, in fact. Don't let these two verses, the fact that there's only two of them, don't let their small stature fool you. I mean, these two verses are infused with spiritual nitroglycerin. I mean, if the Bible had uh, an Uncle Sam recruitment poster, you know, the one where he's sitting there pointing at you? I mean, Romans 6, 12-14 would be it. I mean, Paul says, I want you in, in the fight uh, against sin to go to war with, with sin sin that's still around you and, and affecting your mortal bodies. These verses blow up our spiritual complacency with a force that will knock the wind out of you if you're asleep at, the, at your post. And if you've read, and you heard them this morning, if you've read these verses, they're not difficult to understand. I mean... One preacher said very different from, from what you've heard all the way up to this point, chapter or verses 1 through, through 11. I mean, if that was you know, this union with Christ and baptism and we're trying to figure all of that, that out, I mean, these verses are not spiritual calculus. I mean, this is 1 plus 1 equals 2. If you are in Christ, then you should live differently. That's what he says. Believers who are in Christ are so inextricably linked that God says what happened to Jesus is accounted to us, but those facts have a therefore. And we have arrived at the, the therefore. Doctrine is always something that is to be applied. It's never an end unto itself. Truth calls us to act, not just every, not just right here, but, but everywhere in the Bible. And as much as I emphasize to you the necessity to understand Verses 1 through 11, and we take so many, many uh, sermons. I don't know, what, was like 52? I don't know how many we we took to understand this union with, with Christ. As much as I emphasize, you have to understand. I'm going to be saying to you over the next two weeks, you must apply it with the same force, the same emphasis. In fact, application is the very thing that Paul's arguing about in this section. I mean, in verse 1, Paul is accused that his doctrine will actually lead to a lack of application. I mean, Paul is preaching the doctrine of grace, and that will lead to, to doing sin. Verse 1, we, uh, shall we continue in sin? No application. That grace may abound. I mean, they're arguing, I mean, at least the law, Paul, led us to do something about sin. At least the law gives us some guardrails in here to deal with, with this sin. And Paul just blows that up. And I mean, the law was given so that sin might increase, so that grace might, might, might overflow. So shall we focus now on the just this doctrine of grace and not apply it in the fight against sin? And Paul's answer is may it never be. I mean, he pushes back hard on that. Just like Jesus does, just like Paul's Lord does. when he says it's not the one who says to me, "Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom, but he who does the will of my Father," or, or the same thing that John says in First John, it, it's not saying we have fellowship with Him. and then walking in darkness, it's actually, it's actually loving and doing, or James faith without works is, is dead. I mean, the doctrine that Jesus is Lord always leads to doing God's will. And it does here as, as well. In verses 11 through 14, Paul actually gives three imperative commands to walk in this new reality that, that he just described. And he draws his conclusion in verse 11, and then he continues in this exhortation, these exhortations, three of them, in verses 12 through 14. And we touched on verse 11 last week, but we're going to pick back up there and get back on the interstate and and drive. Look, look if you would, at verse 11. Paul says, even so, which tells you that there's something that was before. Even so, even so, everything I've been saying to you, even so, consider yourselves. Now he turns it to you. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in, in, in Christ Jesus. That verse is a summary of what he just got done saying for the last ten verses, and it's a bridge to the commands that, that, that follow. It now turns the focus from, from Christ to, to you, and keeps its foot in that, that theological union, but then moves us to these, these imperative commands. In fact, this is a command, but it's related to your thinking. It means to reckon or to calculate or to consider. And the words, in the same way or even so, shows that Paul is drawing a comparison from, from before. He, he's got some luggage that he's bringing with him. It's a comparison between the death and life of Christ and in you. You're a Christian now. Someone who is in union with him and in union with these, with these theological events. You remember our illustration of the facts of the gospel, the theology of the gospel, and and then our, our response to it. Well, Here's the response. And we're told now to die to sin. Is that what we're told? No, that's not what we're told. Look, if you would, at verse 11. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin. He doesn't say die to sin here. The command doesn't have anything to do with you dying. You don't have control over that. Jesus has already died for us and we receive the benefits of His dying. So the objective of of this command is that we should take His death into account to take it seriously and then regard ourselves as dead to sin. In fact, verse 11 summarizes all the changes that God told us just happened to us at the moment of salvation. It's all described here in this one verse. I and mean, you summarize verses 1 through or 2 through 10 in, in this one verse. Now that you're a believer, you've been regenerated. There's a change in how you relate to sin, a change in how you relate to God, and it's our union with Christ that, that brings both of those things about, which is exactly what this verse says. In, in, in summary, you're to consider yourselves dead to sin. There's a change of a relationship there to, to sin. You're, you're no longer slaves to sin. We'll talk about how sin is still operating around us and, and in us and through us in, in a few minutes. But there's a change of relationship. You're no longer slaves to sin. Sin is no longer your master. And you're to consider yourselves alive to God. A change of relationship there. You relate to God differently. Now, now as being a, a saved man or woman than you did before. You're a new creation. You have resurrected life within you. And both of those are because you're in union with Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ, verse 11. So consider these things, being in Christ Jesus. I mean, for a Christian choosing to sin now that, that they have died to sin's power in, in, in Christ is equivalent to digging up a corpse and having fellowship with him. But as wonderful and, and as deep as this doctrinal portion is that, that we just work through, it's entirely useless if we consider only and we don't move on to practice. I mean, Christians are not bloated toads of information contemplating God on the lily pad of life. I mean, they're, they're soaring eagles of, of change that, that spread their wings to, toward holiness. Truth and doctrine are... Are the, the wind is the wind beneath those wings. And the, and the spirit is, is the one that gives us the ability to ride those, those air currents. But without the spirit and truth, I mean, we're more like table turkeys than majestic birds of, of, of prey. But, but Paul says even great eagles must flap their, their wings and strain their muscles to, to rise, which is what he's going to call us to do now. Understand what you are and then act accordingly. And Paul is going to show specifically what this flapping and straining looks like in, in life. And he's going to apply this truth with two imperatives, two commands, related to what we must do concerning sin, enduring sin, and then one command about life toward, toward God. But if you miss everything else, everything that I've, that I've already said, hear this. These two verses mean a Christian cannot go on living there their life as they have always lived or living a comfortable life, a passive life. We must fight. And the good news is now you can. We cannot, we must not let sin go on reigning unopposed in our, in our daily lives. We, we, we must revolt in the name of the rightful ruler, God, Cranfield said, against sin's usurping rule. So this is a command to consider the facts in verse 11. And now in verses 12 through 14, Paul says, act accordingly. And he describes further how we, we do that. We'll call it two commands to act according to the facts about our, our salvation. One, we, we must fight to mortify sin. There are actually two imperatives. We'll, we'll lump together in that one because they're both the same, but... They go in greater detail. And then, too, we must live to magnify God, which we'll look at likely next week. We must fight to mortify sin. We must live to magnify God based on everything that Paul just got done telling us. And the first command to act according to to the, the fact is is to fight to mortify sin. Do not obey sin's influence and do not offer sin instruments. You'll go from greater to to more specific or more general to more specific. Look, Look, if you would, at verse 12. He says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. There are three important details to note here. First of all, there's a command do not let sin reign. That's the command. Then there's a sphere where that reign is exercised in our mortal bodies. And then there's a result, which is also tied to this reigning or, or ruling, so that you obey its desires. So verse 12, in verse 12, Paul now spells out what it means to reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Here, dead to sin. I mean what does it look like to do that? Well there are two prohibitions here. And the first one is we do not let sin reign. I mean the command is a is a present imperative. Meaning that this is something that you continually do throughout your Christian life. This is this is something you do every day. This is something that you you do from the moment that you're a believer until you see God face to face in glory. You continually obey this this command here. And the reigning. You're not let's in reign is a word that Paul's used before. It it simply means to rule like a king or like a lord. So Paul is saying, do not let sin sit as Lord over you. Your whole Christian life, this is your your command. Do not let it sit on the throne over your body through its desires. Doug Moose said that without the reminder or the truth of verses 1 through, through 10 or 2 through 10 about our union with Christ that makes that possible, I mean, this command would be like telling a drowning man to swim to shore. Or be warmed and be filled. But based on all of the truth, verses 2 through 10, you're you're to constantly consider yourselves dead to sin and you're to make that your practice in your daily choices. Refuse sin lordship, which looks like not letting sin hold sway over you. Paul uses a parallel word in verse 14 that helps clarify what he means by, by reigning here. I said he's already used it, but look at verse 14. Verse 14 is the summary of, of the commands. For sin shall not be master over you, for you're not under the law but under grace. And that with that, he's going to transfer from this discussion about grace to how a believer now operates in relationship to the law. But he says sin shall not be lord over you or master over you. And then he says, sin shall not have lordship over you, to exercise authority, to demand obedience. Sin cannot demand obedience, so don't obey it, is what he's saying in this first part of the verse, in verse 12. And you might be sitting here, having listened to those sermons before, saying, but wait a minute. I mean, I thought sin was already conquered. Conquered. As I heard one preacher talking about this. He said, you know, I mean, you, you told me that, that God flipped off the, you know, the, the, the switch of sin. I'm now dead to sin. I, I mean, why can't He find, isn't there another switch in there for temptation? Why can't He flip that switch off too? I mean, why did He leave that one on? I mean, you just told me for ten verses I'm no longer a slave. Sin is no longer reigning. And if that's true then how does it get back on the throne here? I mean, why does he give me a command not to let it get back on the throne? And that's exactly what Paul is dealing with. How sin gets back on the throne. He's saying you must not let sin get back on the throne. Don't let it take its seat. It calls out to you. It's not passive. It doesn't wait for you to invite it. It it horns its way in right into the throne room of your heart and plops itself up there. And Paul's saying, throw it off. Example Joel James used may may help you. At least it was helpful to me. He told a story of a football player who started with one college team and then transferred halfway through his season to a rival. So for our context... Say this student began at UVA right out of high school. And in his senior year, after playing for UVA for four years, in his senior year, he transferred to a real football team at Tech. Let's just say that. <laughs> he said, imagine the first game when this man comes out wearing hokey maroon, looking across the field at his old UVA coaches. These were the men who coached him for four years. These are the men who recruited him out of high school. I mean, he knows their voices, even facial expressions. But he no longer takes orders from them. And he says, suppose during the game, the old coaches begin to yell at this young man to do something from the sidelines uh, so, so UVA can score a touchdown. Now, prior to his change of teams... The player had to do what those coaches said. But now he's not supposed to do what they say. And he now has a choice to disobey their voice. He can't stop them from yelling. They will yell. Before he didn't have a choice. Now he does. And it's the same way with sin. Sin gets back on the throne by calling to you from the sidelines of of life and, and climbing up there and you yielding. And I said, it's not shy. It will try to demand your obedience. It will tell you, you must obey me. You have no choice to obey me. It will use all manners of things. Look, who do you think you are? Do you think God even loves you? Look at how many times you've listened to me before. You should listen to me now. The devil doesn't have any rules. He's fine to lie to you as long as you'll do what he says. And Paul says... He has no power over you. Sin has no power over you unless you let him get back on the throne. And what is teaching here is the voice of sin still calls out to us. It wants to be your master, but you now must refuse it. Martin Lloyd-Jones made a powerful distinction when talking about this verse. He said, notice in verse 11, Paul does not say that sin is dead. He says we are dead to sin. I mean, nowhere does this say that sin has died. In fact, sin is alive and well. It's everywhere, isn't it? Sin tempts our natural desires that are perfectly normal and then turns them into inordinate affections. Sin takes the things that God has designed as good, maybe appetites for for intimacy or hunger, and and turns them into inordinate affections, perverts them. Sin in the world tries to pervert our affections through our mortal bodies. And we must not allow it. That's what Paul is is saying here. So he says, don't do that. Don't listen. Don't yield. Don't obey. Because you're Christ now. You don't wear that old uniform. You don't have to listen to those old coaches. And you say, Pastor, I hear that. I want to obey that. But that's easier said than, than done. I mean, those old coaches can be persuasive. Like Joel said, they can be loud and forceful and scream at you, even red-faced. And yet Paul says what you have to remind yourself is, is you're not under their control anymore. I mean, that, that's where the, the, the first part of the, the fight begins. You remind yourself, based on God's authority, sin is no longer your master. But they can tempt you to do what they say. And so you have to get very practical, which he will in verse 13. But this is the difference now for the Christian. You no longer have to do what sin says. But it doesn't mean sin can't lure you or dupe you to do what it desires. It doesn't mean that you may not find that voice sounding very normal, very natural, especially if you have nursed those desires your entire lives and you have fed them. I mean, think about this. People in the culture say that they, what they are what they desire. I am fill in the blank. Everything from a different gender to a specific orientation or whatever it might be. Because I have these desires in me and yet they have fed these desires through looking at things that they shouldn't or listening to things that perverted their thinking and their, their mind and then they wonder why the desire is so strong. Paul doesn't mean that sin can't lure you or dupe you to do what it desires. And it doesn't mean that you may not find that voice sounding natural, but you might want to look at at why that voice is so loud through the choices that you have made and who you've been listening to. And so Paul gives you a command here. He's reminding you of the change that you didn't feel, but that happened. And then he's telling you, do not listen. He's commanding you, don't fall for it. You're not free from temptation. You're free from sin's authority. Now you have to act on that freedom, and you have to disobey sin's voice, which is an act of choice. Again, a voice quite possibly you've been used to obeying for, for a long time. And the best way to do that is to fill your heart with God's voice instead, which is in His Word. You, you need to feed those new appetites. You have a new master New coach, so do what he says. In fact, you could summarize this part of the verse by stop letting sin tell you what to do. Or as John Owen said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. And then Paul tells us where we're not to let sin reign. If if that wasn't specific enough for you, he's moving closer and closer to, to black and white. Rubber meets the road. He says it's not to reign in our mortal bodies. Verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. Here's the spear. Now, there are a couple tricky wickets here. First of all, what does Paul mean by mortal body? Why why does he call it a mortal body? And then whose lusts are these? Is, Is this the body's lust or is this sin's lust? Am I... Uh, so that you obey the body's lust, the body's desires, or so that you obey sin's desires, sin which is trying to reign. And, and first, the, the, the first, what does the Paul mean by the mortal body? I mean, most exegetes see the emphasis is placed on the word mortal, and I would agree, rather than, than body. It's a mortal body. Paul adds that adjective because he wants to emphasize something. Meaning Paul's not simply focused on your physical frame or your your physical body as much as he is on this battle that you're in in this fallen world, in this mortal world. That's the mortal part. Sin wants to reign in this this body that's of earth, a, a finite body, a temporary body, a body that's affected by the fall that's still in a fallen world. That's where sin wants to take lordship over you. Paul doesn't mean that our bodies are intrinsically evil, per se, like a Greek Platonic sense where the spiritual part of you is good and the physical part of you is bad. So it doesn't really matter what I do in my body. The real me is my, is my heart, my, my, my spirit. So just disregard the body or deaden the, the passions. The problem with with that besides being unbiblical, is it doesn't work. I mean, you, you can lock up the body in a monastery, but the heart is locked up in there with it. And that's the problem. I've heard 80-year-old men in a nursing home that have lost all of their youthfulness, what you might attach to certain sins, still say, that they struggle at times at a, giving a passing glance at a female. Paul's point here is, is that our body is our, is our form here and now, and it, it's still part of this age. It's weak, it's dust, it's frail. Isn't that what we, we, we tell the Lord? Remember, Lord, our frame is but dust. Doug Moo paraphrases it this way. Do not let sin's reign, which leads to obedience to the body's sinful passions, occupy your lives. The reason I think this is the focus is because the battle is a spiritual one that that works out in our bodies, those bodies that that are finite, but it works out inside out. You don't have to obey what your body does, but that's the portal through which temptations come. And when we fight in the daily decisions we make in our heart, we make decisions about how to use our minds, our eyes, our feet. And while we used to use this body to serve sin, we now make decisions to serve Christ. So Paul uses this word mortal. And it's to warn us where the enemy can get under the tent. And there's also some hope that's mingled in there for the fight. I, th- I think the word mortal here reminds us of two things. One has already said that our bodies are still weak and dying, and they're not fully redeemed yet. And, and because of that, it can be subject to the influence of this age. So it's a warning. You, you have a mortal body. You're not glorified yet. So don't take this about being, being dead uh, in Christ to, to, to the reign and the slavery of sin as... As you coast now, you still have a mortal body. So that's the warning. Your body and its faculties are still earthy. And so they can be used to tempt us. I think in one way, Paul's singing the old Sunday school song here. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. There's a father up above. He's looking down with love, so be careful, little eyes, what you see. And ears... Mouths and feet. So Paul's saying as believers, we must not allow the, the influence of this world, the influence of sin to hold sway in our human faculties, our minds, our feelings, our physical biology. And there's also some hope in this word. Because if it's mortal, that means that it's going to give way to something that's immortal. It means that the battle is not... Going to rage forever. First Corinthians 15, behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment. And again, here's where you say, well, in there, there's another switch in there. Why don't you flip that one off? Are you going to be changed in a moment? Why not you just do that now? And I think the answer is because we would trust the Lord. Besides, He's wise will be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. We will be changed completely. The, The battle will be over one day. For this perishable must put on imperishable. It must. And this mortal must put on immortality. This mortal body is part of your salvation. It's redemption. It's part of your salvation. And all the temptations and enticements that you face here, which are so fierce and feel so fierce, and they are. Paul says it's temporary. Remember, it's temporary. In fact, it's already getting better. I mean, Paul chooses a different phrase here for mortal body. In verse 6, he calls it the body of sin. And in Romans 7, 24, he calls it the body body of death, the body of sin, the body of death. Believers are no longer that. He he says we have mortal bodies. Bodies that are weak. Bodies that are subject to influence. Even if they're not enslaved to sin. So he's saying be careful. When you think you stand, lest you fall, you still have a mortal body. And because of this mortal body... Because we are not fully redeemed yet, we are influenced by passions or, or lusts. Look, look, if you would, at verse, verse 12 again. He says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. Here's the, the result. Don't let sin take the throne again and start lording over, over your mind, your, your will, your emotions, your, your body resulting in your obedience to, to its desires. Now, here's the second issue you have to resolve. I mean, whose lusts are these? Are these the body's desires or uh, body's lusts or sins? And, and the word is epith, uh, epithumia, which just is the simple word for, for desire. Sometimes it's translated desire, sometimes it's translated lust. It's the same word, depending upon what it's connected to, the context. And, and here it's translated lust because this is connected to something bad. But it's just a passion. It's a desire. And that desire can be good. It can be God-given. And that desire then can be perverted. So it can become an inordinate desire or an evil desire. Or, or it can be a lust. Something that's, that's rising, that's, that's ungodly in and of itself. There's good evidence on both sides of where this, these, these desires originate. And I don't think that changes Paul's point at all. Do they originate in the body? Yeah, sometimes that they do, sometimes they do. Do they originate in the world? Sin personified? Yeah, sometimes they do. But Paul's point here is he defines how sin tries to get us to obey it, or or what obeying sin looks like. When you yield to sin, it looks like obeying desires. It influences us through desires or or lusts and Those lusts can surely arise from the body or from sin's presence in general. John says that they can come from the world, the flesh, or the devil, right? And more specifically, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The mortal body can be the portal through which these desires tempt us to to yield to sin's voice again. You know, 1 John 2.15. Watch how parallel this is. Do not love the world or anything in the world. Here's desire. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is, is not in them. For everything in the world, this system, this unredeemed system, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father but from the world. The world and its desires pass away. There's the hope. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. You give evidence that you're regenerate by doing the, the will of God. So Paul moves here from sin as a king reigning to now how that, that king is, is described like a magnet drawing or an influence convincing. Or James were tempted. When we're drawn away by our own lusts, our own desires, and when lust conceives, what's lust conceiving? Allowing sin to get back on the throne of my heart. When I listen to it, when lust has conceived, when we listen or when we obey, then then sin takes the throne and it brings forth death. When lust is conceived, it, it produces ugly babies. And Paul says sin is... Paul says the body is, is a portal where sin can influence us. I mean, If you fill your mind with TV all the time, with the thoughts of the culture, you'll find it a lot harder to think biblically. If you don't guard what your eyes look at or you linger too long, you can become like Eve or, or Achan who saw the tree that was good for food and pleasing to the eye. How did, how did Eve go from walking with God in the cool of the day to... to Jettisoning jettisoning everything the Creator said. She saw, and and she was tempted. If you don't direct your hands and your feet, they'll go places that they shouldn't. And you say, how is that possible, Pastor? I thought I was dead to sin. Well, Paul says you are, but sin still has power. And you must be aware of how it can entice. and, And it entices through these desires, sometimes through these affinities. Through these passions, let's use our football analogy again, but but change it a little bit. Uh, say you're no longer um, a tech player who's having trouble listening to the demands of his former coaches, but let's say you're Adrian Rogers, and you've left the Green Bay Packers, and you're now a New York Jet, and the deal's done. I mean you are now a full-fledged New Yorker. You, you have a P.O. box there and everything. You, you sold your house in Green Bay, and you moved to the Big Apple. But that doesn't mean that Rogers won't have affinities for Green Bay. Maybe even his most comfortable old Packer jersey in the closet that he wants to put on every now and then. That doesn't mean he won't have Green Bay fans and friends who can influence him through desires that that he won't think of. And so what Paul is calling for here is loyalty to the Jets, as hard as that is for me to say. I mean, you have to become part of the uh, of a, uh, you have become part of a new team, but you must do that in practice. You must take off with the old uniform and put on a new one. You now have to go to a new locker room. You have new teammates, new fans, uh, and you have to act like it. You have to refuse the Green Bay coaches in the first part of the verse, and then as you go through life, you you must resist the desires that arise which were once loyal to to Green Bay. Because what Paul is describing here is not a desire to return to the frozen tundra of Wisconsin, but, but a desire to return to the kingdom of Satan. And Paul says you can't let sin go unchallenged and you're not going to do the battle that you need to with sin if you don't understand how it comes in. And it comes in through these these desires and it manifests in this mortal body. And you don't want to obey the, the lust of your fallen nature. So how do you do that? You must not obey sin or its desires in your mortal body and specifically you must offer yourself must not offer yourself as a as an instrument to do evil. Remember, we're going from general to specific. Look at verse 13. Notice it's a continuation. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. So do not obey sin's influence. And do not offer sin instruments. The word for instruments is also translated weapons. In 2 Corinthians 6-7, 2 Corinthians 10-4. It just means a tool to accomplish something. In this case, to accomplish unrighteous or wicked ends. And so here Paul is bringing the microscope into greater focus. And he goes from the general to the specific in this command. In verse 12, he said, don't let sin reign in the body. And now he's talking about individual members of that mortal body or that mortal person. Things like your mind, your will, your emotions, your eyes, your hands. He says, do not go on presenting these things as tools to do bad things. Weapons in the enemy's hands. And, and the progression actually begins back in verse 11, from general to specific. He says, you consider yourself dead to sin and, and, and alive to God. Then he says, your mortal body, and now he talks about the members of, of, of that body. Paul's command is that as Christians, we must not present our natural capacities as tools of unrighteousness. And here's really where the rubber meets the road. I mean, this is the part of the passage that tells us that yielding to sin is not passive, it's active. This is not slipping, this is choosing to do. Stop presenting, do not go on presenting. That means when we we turn over our faculties in service to sin, we're making an active choice to do that. An active choice? Really? I mean, do I just choose? Of course you don't just choose. You do in one sense, but that, that choice is... Is, is confused and it's self-deceived and you're, you're believing lies and there's passions and desires that are waging here and, and old natural affinities that are, that are being brought to bear. And, and, and if you hear that and you get the idea this is a war, that's exactly what you should hear. Doug Moose said, if we understand we're dead to sin and alive to God, then we must daily, continually... Avoid using our abilities as resources in the service of sin. We're not to offer them in service to the tyrant who once ruled over us. That's exactly what sin is. It's a tyrant. Whatever it promises you, whatever you think you're going to get out of it, it's a lie. It doesn't care. It'll promise you the world and then leave you devastated in a heap. Since sin is no longer a ruler, we're to remount, renounce our service to sin. And we no longer use things for evil. I mean, if a man once used his mind to create deviant things, then he must no longer use that ability for the devil. Or as Paul says in another epistle, I mean, how practical is this? Let him who stole steal no more, but work with his hands a practical example of how this whole verse is put into practice. Stop using your abilities and your desires for sinful purposes and start using them for God. And as you start using them for God, you'll find the deceptions and the lures of the, uh, of the, of the natural desires draining away. The desire for sin. I mean, if a man once used his money for himself and his own pleasure, he must stop using those resources for sinful purposes. You must start using them for God. Don't just stop one thing. I mean, Paul, when you put this whole thing together, you stop one and you start doing the other. They get they go together. And it actually helps you do the battle. I mean, a person who once used their sensual desires and natural bodies for immoral things must stop employing them that way and start using them for God. Maybe leaving off those things completely or directing them toward, toward a godly marriage. I mean, that's active. This is not passive. This is not sit back and, and intend it to happen because of some theology. These are commands based on theology, but they're commands. I mean, if you've been lazy, then to obey this verse, you have to get the one ads and look for a job. And then you have to take one. And then you have to show up. <laughs> and then you have to do the work. I mean, if you've looked at sinful images or you have... You have certain desires that you shouldn't have for for another man's wife or somebody of the same sex or whatever it is. Don't just pray for God to help you not to do it again. Block those things and then feed righteous desires. Or give someone access to your history or get rid of your phone. If you fail to give faithfully to the Lord, set up online giving so it happens automatically. Make it the first check that you write. I mean, the point is, being passive is not going to cut it with these verses. I mean, forgetting is not a valid excuse. Paul is saying grace does not create a passivity in our fight against sin, it increases the intensity of our fight against it and actually puts wind in our sails to actually do the battle. You're not less engaged in the war under grace. You've been freed to actually do the battle. Before you were slaves, there was no battle before. You say, Yeah, I didn't feel it at all. I mean, I just I just got up. I mean, I was great. Yeah, great, except you were headed for hell. And the consequences of that lifestyle, whatever you were living, hadn't come to full fruit yet, leave you devastated whenever you're 40 or 50 or 60 or whenever it is. You didn't feel the fight. You're a slave. There was no battle at all. Now you've been freed, and yet you've been freed unto war. So Paul says, Fight. Fight hard. Fight the coach yelling from the sideline that wants to to get back on the the throne. Fight it in your mortal bodies. Fight it in the influences that that are there. Fight hard. Fight on. Fight until you reach the finish. You will reach the finish. You're in a mortal body. It will be immortal one day. Redemption is coming. Don't give up. Don't grow weary in well-doing. You will reap if you faint not. Thinking, though, is not enough. Knowing is not enough. Thinking and knowing will lead you to action but you must be about the work, dethroning sin," or it will redominate you. Let me in with something I hope encourages you. It, it, it greatly encouraged me. And I read it maybe three weeks ago It was totally unrelated to this, this verse. I read a devotion by uh, a Puritan named Richard Sibbs. I think I've recommended him to you before. And if, you have, if you've never read Bruised Reed, if you're discouraged, highly recommend that book to you. Um, it's on, online. You can get a PDF, not even pay for it. You can download it this afternoon on your phone. And it's all about how God is, leads with mercy. And in your weakest moment, He doesn't stamp you out or crush you. He... He comes to your aid. It's super encouraging. But in another one of his works, titled Glorious Freedom, Richard Sibbs addressed this this battle here. And it was a moment, I guess, the morning I was reading, and it was just just wow, it's so hard. Just another day back at the fight and and just I don't know, feeling sorry for myself, just feeling just the weight of the of the war, weary in the In the war, and I pull out Sibs, and he says this. In a wicked man, there is nothing but flesh, so there is no resistance. We must understand the nature of this spiritual liberty, this freedom that we have in Christ, in sanctification. It is not a liberty freeing us altogether from conflict and deadness and dullness, It is a liberty not freeing us from combat, but enabling us to fight the battles of the Lord against our own corruptions. Freedom from fighting is the liberty of glory in heaven when there will be no enemy within or without. And I say, hallelujah. I cannot wait till that day. And he ended this way. Therefore... Christians must not be discouraged with the stubbornness and unwillingness of the flesh to do good duties if we have a principle in us to fight against our corruptions and to get good duties out of ourselves in spite of them. This is an argument for a new nature. And he says, the fight... And the fact that you get anything good out of your corruptions is in evidence you're saved. And that should encourage you. It's so fight. Fight Fighting God's freedom. You have been placed in union with Christ. You do not have to obey those voices, but they're powerful. So you have to be aware, and you have to not allow sin to retake the throne. Specifically, you don't want to offer sin Parts of you as tools or weapons of unrighteousness. and He'll turn the coin over and be positive. The other side, how you do that unto God next week. But This morning, let's pray. Father, I pray for any person in here this morning that's just going along. They've come today being carried along by currents of life and things seem good and happy and it's okay and in reality what they're doing is listening to, to the old voices. I pray this morning you would give them a spiritual gut punch that, that knocks the wind out of them and wakes them up because time is short. Lord, I pray for every Christian in here this morning that may be in the fight and very well aware of the fight, and they're engaged in it, and they're weary. I pray that you'd remind them that you've freed them unto the battle, and that the battle will soon be over, and you'd give them strength not to give up, because they will reap if they faint not. And Lord, I pray for all of us in general that we we wouldn't be ignorant of sin's devices the way that it creeps in. We wouldn't say so much in the theological or in the the doctrinal or in the general that we don't get down into the specifics that, that what we look at matters. What we think about matters. And it'll show up in our lives and bring you dishonor. And we don't want to do that. We want to bring you great glory because you are our King and our Savior. So would you help us do that? In Jesus' name, amen.